Our reading this morning is from 2 Samuel chapter 12. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the men who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and showed no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house, because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household I am going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to, the, to one who is close to you. And he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt, the son born to you will die. The word of the Lord. If, uh, if you were with us two weeks ago, David was riding high. He was the giant slayer. He was the faithful servant. He was the godly friend and the king. Two weeks ago, one week ago, we saw a different side of David. Now he is the rapist, the murderer and the abuser of power. At the end of 2 Samuel 11, which we looked at last week, the last line of that chapter reads, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. At this point, he'd sent for Bathsheba, and he was still lying with her. Shakespearean-like tragedy. There is something rotten in the state of Israel. There's a time lag between chapter 11 and chapter 12. There's several months have passed, in fact, and David is still living with another man's wife, 
Bathsheba is still lying beside him. He's still behaving like other monarchs, believing that his satisfactional whims are a right to be bestowed on him because he's a king. He is ego inflated, he has a sin-seared conscience, and he is continuing to indulge in his transgressions. In Psalm 32, we see what David was going not at the time. This is him looking back at that period. And let me read it to you. Psalm 32, and I'm going to read verses 3 and 4. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. I don't know if you've ever been to Florida in the middle of summer. I've been, uh, grew up in Sydney, and in the middle of summer, the heat, if you're not in an air-conditioned space, the humidity is 100%, the temperature is well over 100 degrees, and you honestly just sit there and you cannot move. Your energy, your, your emotional and physical energy is completely sapped. David's conscience, the weight of God's hand on his heart is sapping his strength. And you hear him say here that his bones are wasting away. He feels it inside his his bones are crushed. His inner self is wasting away. Now, this is, of course, a hindsight observation by David. And we look back at that now from David's lens and we say, yes, I recognize that sort of feeling. But what was going on for David at that time? What was David thinking? Choosing to live in the torment of this guilt. How is he able to live with himself for these months? How is he able to rationalize his behavior? He's doing the work of a king. We see that because in chapter 12, when Nathan comes to him and brings a case to him about this man whose little ewe lamb was stolen, he is actually performing a kingly duty because he is the royal court, not just in terms of being a king who goes to war, but also a king who sits over judicially his people. Just as you remember from Solomon, when Solomon came and gave that wise judgment about which way that baby should go. David is, in fact, forming his kingly duties. On the outside, things are looking pretty good. So perhaps this distraction of looking good on the outside, of going through the motions, of doing our work, is what got in the way. Perhaps he's distracted with being busy. He's put himself in a place where he can do everything he can but face up to that heavy hand of God. And there's a place for distraction, certainly in mourning, it goes in waves, and we need those spaces to, to laugh or to, to get on with our lives. Or in addiction, when we're facing a craving, we need to distract ourselves to get through it. But there is no place for avoidance when it comes to a bad conscience. Those other cases are coping strategies, not avoidance strategies. The sin, unconfessed sin, is like a pussy infected wound that needs treating. And it gets worse and worse and worse as we leave it. So, in his grace, God steps in. And it's hard grace, isn't it? It's not pretty. It has awful consequences, but it does lead to salvation. Now, God had no need to send him any other message but one of judgment, of condemnation. He's broken the law. But he pushes David to the point of confession. This is grace, unmediated grace, as hard as it looks to see. Now we're going to look first, briefly, at the act of holding someone accountable. So we're going to look at Nathan, an act of love to hold. Then we're going to look at David, and we're going to dig into the implications 
of being held accountable. What does it mean to be held? Let's jump in then with Nathan. Now this is, we're going to look at this because some of you from time to time are going to have to confront people and you're not going to want to do it. At least I hope you don't want to do it. This is something that should be envied. And in this case, it is it should not be envied. And in this case, for Nathan, that is particularly the case. Nathan is confronting a king, not just a king, but a king who is also a rapist and a murderer. It's a dangerous proposition. With the simple uh, wave of a command, God can have him, uh, David can have him killed. So Nathan was also bringing Dave, David's consequence. Uh, God's consequences to David. He's bringing the word of God to convict David. And Nathan really takes the essence of what David has done and strips it down to its bare ugliness. He takes out all the intrigue and the uh, sexuality, all the impulsiveness and the stuff that people use to justify things, and he leaves the selfishness and the meanness and he reveals the depravity and the weakness in David's heart. Now, but Nathan is also gentle and wise in how he does this. Now, I, I don't want to make too much of this. I'm not saying that we should look at this text as the prescriptive way that you should approach someone when they're sinning. But there is something in this. There are principles in this which we do look at and we do need to look at, right? First of all, Nathan doesn't shoot from the hip. This is not rash or reactive. He has prayerfully and thoughtfully worked out how he's going to do this. He's also not shooting from self-motivation. This is not about him. And this is a message which is really important for you who are group leaders or elders or pastors in this church. When we discipline, when we move towards, when we confront, it cannot be about us. It cannot be about our fears. It needs to come through and from God. He also strategizes to be heard. Let me actually read verses 1 to 4, and we'll see the parable that Nathan used. The Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveller came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveller who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. Now David burned with anger against the man. Okay, so we see in this little story here, in this parable, that's actually presented as a real story in the royal court to David as judge over the people, and Samuel is looking for a verdict here. I mean, Nathan is looking for a verdict here. And David is making rightly a moral judgment on somebody. That is his role in this place. But it's also incredibly hypocritical. And we see that as we read it. And again, this is really a note to those, Jessica, wherever you are, uh, being ordained as an elder, uh, those of us who are pastors and leaders in the church, to really be seeking and looking into our own hearts and being careful and gentle and kind as we move in these directions. 
Now, he strategizes, Nathan strategizes. He appeals to David's best virtues. David was a shepherd. David gets what it means to care for little youths. David thought himself as a defender of the weak. David thought of himself as an upholder of the righteous. Nathan is emoting in David a cathartic, empathetic response to the contents before he turns around and points at David. And I think that we need to, not prescriptively, you don't need to use a parable, but think what is the wise path if we're called to confront someone? What is the way to confront an employer if you're an employee? What is the way to confront a parent if you're a child? What is the way that couples, what is the wisest, most gentlest, kindest way to approach when you need to correct, when you need to hold accountable, when you need to rebuke? Now, this pushes me to think, of course, of the verse from James 1.5, where it says, if any of you lack wisdom, ask for it. This is the type of wisdom that God gives when we sit in prayer. Now, this role, however, is not one to be envied. Be wary. Be wary if it's a job that appeals to you. If you're acting in anger or self-interest, be prayerful, be strategic in an attempt to be hurt. We look at this briefly because it's not the main point, but there's a lot of meat in here that's worth considering as you take on roles where you need to account and hold people accountable. So we move on to the main point, to be held. What does it mean to be held? We look at David. Now, when Nathan tells his story about the sheep, and we, we sort of lent into it before, we see David's righteous indignation right righteous indignation he should have been indignant and we see his response here in verse 5 david burned with anger against the man and said to nathan as surely as the lord lives the man who did this must die he must pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity now in fact david is demonstrating here that he is an actually an excellent old testament judge if you look in exodus 22 1 You'll see that the fourfold repayment is exactly what the law requires. So David is following God's law and he's, uh, he's representing, he's acting on behalf of God in this judgment that he's given to Nathan. Whoever that man was who did that, he needs to repay that four times over. There's an implication in this that that lamb was like a daughter to, uh, to the man. And, and David steps over the mark, if that's really the case, and says the penalty for 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 death, for murder is death. That man should also be put to death. So the two claims, the two sentences that David gives are fourfold repayment of the ewe lamb and the man should be put to death. And they are, uh, or at least the, the four times repayment, the fourfold repayment is biblical. And the put to death would apply more in the case, in fact, of Uriah, who he killed with the hands uh, of the enemies of Israel. So Nathan responds to this correct judgment to David by pointing at David and saying, okay, you want to know who that man was? It was you. You are that man. Now the stink of David's sin has been brought right under his nostrils and he's having to breathe it in. He's having to face up to who he is and what he's done. And what is the response? Now, maybe I should ask the question to you guys. What would your response be at hearing that your sin is not out there, 
but is in here? What would your response be? How would you feel if the sin that you have perpetrated, the stink of that sin was brought up under your nose and its horrible, festering smell infused your nostrils? How would you respond to that? Now, I have a couple of recommendations, strategies I've used, not the best. The first one is the finger point. Beth Sheba seduced me. Uriah disobeyed me. Adam points to Eve. Eve points to the serpent. I yelled at my child, my spouse, my employee because dot, dot, dot. These are the most ancient of avoidance strategies. And of course, they don't work with God at all. Another strategy which I find at least, uh, well, I can't say I found it effective, but I can't say that I haven't used it, is to minimize. Well, compared to other kings, I'm pretty good. Look at our politics and the way they treat each other. I'm pretty good compared to most American politicians, it would seem. In fact, there's an interesting commentary on this passage which compares uh, looking at what was going on at Watergate with yourself and making the argument, I embezzle paper clips, not presidential funds. Minimization. And David is not given that option. We are not able to minimize. We are not able to finger point. In fact, it brings back another verse from James, which basically, James 1, uh, chapter 1, verse 23, anyone who is confronted by my word and continues to disobey, they're like someone who looks in a mirror and forgets what they look like. And we see here that Nathan spells it out to David. I'm going to read 7 to 10. He's the mirror to David. Then Nathan said to David, you are that man. This is what the Lord of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hands of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if this had been too little, I would have given you even more. What you did, what did you, why did you despise the word of the Lord by looking at what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and you took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. So we see here that Nathaniel, uh, sorry, Nathan is not mixing words here. He's calling him out directly. And you can imagine that as Nathan is saying this to David, David, the judge who's sitting there who knows the law, is ticking them off as he goes. God says, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. God says, you not, shall not commit adultery. God says, you will not murder. And David sees what he looks like. That mirror is effective. God word, God's word has hit him square in the face. The true nature of what he's done comes to the fore. And his response is in verse 13. And David said to Nathan, and the brevity here is not one which we should mean as minimization. In fact, the brevity here really indicates that he just gets it and there's nothing else to say. I have sinned against the Lord. I've sinned against the Lord. What else can I say? There is nothing else to say. I've sinned against the Lord. Now, this is not a Pollyanna text. Sin is ugly and it has consequences. David can't fix his sin. Creatures can't undo death or rape or abuse. And David's going to have to live 
with the consequences of his sin. And if you're wondering if there are consequences to sin, look around. Just look around at the brokenness of, uh, of the world around us. And in this case, Nathan spells out to David what's going on here. He says it in verse 11. The Lord said to David, uh, through Nathan, out of your own household I am going to bring calamity upon you. You brought evil into this household, I'm going to bring calamity out of it. You brought into this household lust, entitlement, greed, and this household is going to be overrun by lust, entitlement, and greed. He makes the implication there that just as David in secret, in the dark, slept with Bathsheba, that he is going to be shamed because one of his own family is going to sleep with his wives. And in fact, in a few chapters later, Absalom sleeps with the harem on the same roof that David looked over the city and saw Bathsheba. He is shamed. It's done in public. David is humiliated. The fourfold restitution in his life, David loses four of his sons. The child of Bathsheba, Amnon, Absalom, and Elijah. Sin is ugly and it has consequences. And David cannot fix his sin. Creatures cannot undo death, rape, and abuse. David will live with the consequences of his sin. He can't fix it. So what is the fix? Where do we go from here? Now, I told you at the beginning that this is an act of grace. It doesn't sound like an act of grace, does it? The best thing that happened to David was that he was confronted here by God. God's whole point here is David's salvation. It's storing the right relationship between David and God. So, and we can summarize this really in just three small sentences, followed in a second by a fourth. The very beginning of verse 7, when Nathan says, You're that man. You're that wretched sinner. Verse 13a, where David recognizes that and just says, I see myself in the mirror. I have sinned against the Lord. And then 13b, Nathan says, For God the Lord has also put away your sin. In other words, somehow God has provided the fix here. And you're looking at me like, are you nuts? Are you crazy? Look at the consequences of what happened. What's the fix? Well, we just looked at all the consequences. How has God put away David's sin? Well, you remember, as well as the fourfold price of that ewe lamb, David's life itself was part of the judgment that he proclaimed. David's correct judgment was that man must die. And we see in verse, the last part of verse 13, Nathan brings the grace. You are not going to die. You are not going to die. There is forgiveness for the things you do and the sort of person you are, David. There is forgiveness for the things we do and the sort of people we are. Restoration with God is possible. Atonement. Atonement. That word just which means somehow someone else is paying that price. Restoration with God is possible. Also, restoration by God is possible. And we're not looking at that in this text. All these horrible consequences, all the things that flowed out of this in the cross also can be made right. 
And I don't want to let that go in this sermon without noting that it's not addressed here. There is a recreation story at the second coming. But we're not looking at that now. We're looking at the sin which plagues us and the atonement that's needed for it. We looked also before at the psalm that David said when he was looking back, the crushed bones, the withering away from within. We see also in the psalm that we read for our confession, Psalm 51, when David's actually responding directly to this incident, he said, have mercy on me, God. This is verse 1 and 2. And then verses 7 and 8. Have mercy on me, God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassions, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sins. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I'll be whiter than slow. snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. He's looking for the answer here. And somehow, somehow he finds it. Now, this would be better read. Meet me over the mercy seat. Verse 1, have mercy on me, would be better read. Meet me over the mercy seat. And then down in 7, cleanse me with hyssop. What's going on here? The mercy seat was the thing in the center of the temple it was a, literally a bronze lid or seat which covered over the ark. And once a year on the Day of Atonement, the priest would bring in the sacrifice and you would literally meet God face to face in that place. And so what's being said here is, meet me over the mercy seat, O God. And now at that point, when you went in with the, on the Day of Atonement, there was a sacrifice. And a sacrifice was made to atone for the people. And the blood of that sacrifice was, uh, was put on the hyssop. The hyssop was dipped in that, and then it was sprinkled on to imply that a sacrifice, blood needs to be drawn. A life needs to be given for a life. There needs to be justice. God's justice needs to be met. Meet me over the mercy seat, God. But who is doing the sprinkling? You, God, you cleanse me with the hyssop. Notice it's not the priest here. You cleanse me with the hyssop and I will be clean. I will meet you, God, over the mercy seat. David doesn't understand it fully, but he is crying out. He's resting in his hope without full understanding on Christ himself. The sacrifice of God is Jesus on the cross. David is depending without fully realizing that he needs the sacrifice of God the mercy of God, the grace of God, meted out through, the, through, the death, through Jesus' death on the cross to restore him into right relationship with God. Now, some people think that they're not good enough for God. They're not a giant slayer. They're not a great king. Or they're not a great Christian leader. Others think they're not bad enough to need God. They're not a rapist or a murderer or an abuser of power. Now, the human heart is so deceptive. And if you don't have someone holding you accountable to undo those two things, you're going to be deceiving yourself just like David did when we started talking. God is not looking to us to be giant slayers or kings. God is not saying that only murderers and abuses need him. God is looking for all of us to meet him over the mercy seat, to come to him, to be sprinkled 
washed and clean by the blood, by the blood of Christ. This is a passage which calls out for us to be able to say or hear, you are that person. You are riddled with sin. And your hope is only found over the mercy seat, sprinkled with the blood of Christ. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you that we get to see just how broken David was. And Father, we identify with that. We know that we too are broken. And we are so quick to say, we're not good enough. My gosh, David was certainly not good enough. And we're so quick to minimize or to justify or to finger point. Let us learn from David too. I am that man. I have sinned against God. And yet that same God is there to meet over the mercy seat, is there to restore me with the blood of Christ. Help us to lean into that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.